My name is Joel. I'm the executive pastor here on the preaching team as well. So something that has marked this whole past year, this is not going to be a surprise probably to anyone. I'm probably guessing all of us can relate to this, but something that's marked this whole year for me and for a lot of people I've spoken to is the feeling of confusion, right? There's just been a lot of confusion over the course of the past months. And like I said, I'm sure you can relate to that. Um, I personally don't think I've ever lived through such a prolonged state of just confusion and disorientation. Um, I'll point to the shifting, kind of the shifting landscape of the expectations and uh, rules about things we're supposed to do or not do over the course of the pandemic, um, to even seeing how those expectations get politicized and then fed into these narratives and create enemies, um, which adds to the struggle of sorting out how to process the information that you're getting. Um, And then even on top of that, feeling how that has dialed up tension between people. I felt tension in relationships because of all that. Um, And this is just barely scratching the surface, right? I'm sure that a lot of us can relate to that. But the point, the reason I'm starting here is because one theme under all of that for me is just the state of confusion. I mean, it's really simple to point out, but it's been, it's been a confusing time. It's been a confusing season. And, but under that, what I want to say, and this, <laughs> even as I say this, it, it can come off as very like trite Christian jargon, cliche, religious language. But I truly have seen that God brings comfort out of confusion. God brings comfort in the midst of confusion, not despite it, but actually through it and in the midst of it in surprising ways, in unexpected ways. Comfort out of confusion is a sign of God being at work and God God not abandoning you or us. And I'm starting here, A, because I think it relates to what we've all been through, but also because the story that we're going to look at from the book of Acts I think it demonstrates this, that deep comfort from God comes in surprising and confusing circumstances. And so we're going to look at a short story from Acts chapter 20. You can see the reference up on this slide. Um, but what I want to do, this, this story, so we've been stepping through Acts for quite a while. Um, I want to set up a little bit of context to this story. So I think uh, James is running the slides from home. James, if you could go to the map, which is the next slide. Yeah, thank you. Um, I like to do this, especially in the book of Acts, because there's so many names of places and geographies, and it can be just a little, well, confusing (laughs) to go with the theme of the sermon. It can be a little confusing to to know where you're at or what's going on. So I just want to set up where we are in the the map and in the story a little bit. Um, And partly because the beginning of Acts chapter 20, there's a handful of verses that just rip through a bunch of names of places. And so, yeah, it can be a little confusing. Um, But essentially, this map points out roughly where Paul had, had journeyed. Um, part of which is covered in Acts chapter 20. But basically what's happening here is Jordan spoke last week about um, uh, the, the events that happened in Ephesus, if you remember that sermon uh, with, with Artemis and the whole cult around Artemis. Um, so you can see Ephesus on the map here. I'm going to walk over and point to it. Right there on the coast, which is that's modern day what we call Turkey. It was called Asia Minor in the, uh, so if it's not confusing enough, they use different names for places that what we would call them today. Uh, but that's, that's where uh, Paul was when Jordan spoke last week from the previous chapter in Acts. And essentially what's happening is that Paul is working his way um, up the coast 
and back over into Greece. It says he spends about three months in Greece. You can see the cities there down into Achaia and then back up to Philippi. Essentially, to, to boil it down, maybe too simply, essentially he's visiting places he had previously been and places that he, people he'd previously known and helped pastor and work with. Um, and it's possible that part of the reason he was doing that was because of the tumultuous events that had happened in Ephesus that he had just been through. He's going back through these um, uh, through these places he'd previously been. Um, and he's doing that, working his way back, but ultimately, ultimately intending to go back to Jerusalem. So you can see the earth point down the coast, work back by Cyprus, ultimately back down to Jerusalem. So his ultimate intent is to, to Jerusalem, um, which is obviously important that he go through these other places first. And it says in verse 2 of chapter 20, um, well, sorry, let me pause for a second. Look up at... Uh, Near Philippi and Neapolis, you see that little city Troas on the coast there of Asia Minor. That's where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. There's an event that happens in Troas. So we're going to get there, but I'm just trying to tee up the context for that. Before, before we get to that, though, I just want to say a couple quick things about this whole journey that Paul's going on. Um, it says in verse 2 of chapter 20 that Paul traveled to all these regions, and it says he, quote, spoke many words of encouragement to the believers there. So he's traveling around. Um, at least partly to encourage, to pastor, to shepherd the people that were there. Um, and if you have been following us through the stories, you know that Paul has gone to these places and set up communi- believing communities and then gone on to another place to set up another one. And so he's going back to encourage them. But the, what, I, what I love about this, I've said this in other, other sermons about Acts, but we tend to picture Paul, especially in our kind of Western mindset, we tend to picture him as this entrepreneur, um, Maybe, maybe overly aggressive intellectual philosopher type who just debated all the time. Um, and he did do a lot of that, but he also pastored people a lot. He loved people and he spent time with people. And there are texts that talk about him shedding tears with people that he loved. He cared deeply for these communities. And it's just easy to gloss over that when we read through these stories quickly. And I want to highlight that um, because it's, it's comforting to me actually to think of Paul, that, that angle of Paul's ministry. Um, but also, just imagine for a moment, imagine these communities around the ancient world. There's no quick transit. There's no mass communication technologies. There's nothing like that. They are, they are largely, I don't want to say on their own because they have the Holy Spirit, but they're largely uh, with each other and that's it. They're trying to figure out this whole following Jesus thing in the ancient world, which is a totally new thing. And they don't even have the New Testament yet. <laughs> they're trying to do this. Um, and Jordan, uh, several sermons ago, months ago, used the image of imagine trying to put together a puzzle without having the box, without having the box lid, you know, you use that as a reference. It's, I like that image a lot, and he, and he brought out the fact that that's akin to kind of what these early Jesus communities were trying to do. They were trying to follow Jesus. Like, what does it mean to follow a crucified and risen Messiah in this time and place? Um, and so they were figuring it out. And Paul was traveling back to them to give them, them many words of encouragement. And what I want to say about that to the theme of the sermon is that I imagine, I have to imagine, there were many times for these communities and these believers that it was just simply confusing. It must have been just simply confusing. Like, what do we do? What are we doing here? What do we do next? Again, they don't even have the New Testament to point to, <laughs> to read yet. Yet, they will. But that must have been confusing. And Paul visiting them must have brought great comfort. And I think that's part of what we're going to see in the story. Um, so, Let's, let's talk about that. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to talk about what happened in Troas. So pray with me. Lord, thank you for servants and ministers like Paul 
over the, over the centuries whose words still bring deep comfort to us today. Um, Lord, I pray you do work through this next time as we look at this story. May you, for those of us who can relate to this experience of confusion, may you bring deep comfort. May your gospel, may your pronouncement of freedom, of life, of restoration, of love, of forgiveness, may that bring deep comfort, maybe even in a surprising way this morning uh, for us as we press into the story together. Um, in your name, amen. All right, so if you have a text with you, uh, I'm going to pick up in Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 7. Um, and this is, this is where uh, most of what I want to talk about this morning, given all that context. And honestly, I'm just going to say right up front, this is a little bit of a weird story. <laughs> um, but here we go. Starting in verse 7, I'm reading in the NIV. On the first day of the week, this is the intro as, on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. I'm going to pause as I step through this story. So a few things. The community meets to break bread. They were eating together. On the first day of the week, which would have been a Sunday, we're meeting on a Sunday. The early Christians met on Sunday. Why? Because that was when Jesus was raised from the dead. The Jews were typical, typically met on the Sabbath, which was Saturday. And so these early Christians were meeting on Sunday specifically to commemorate the resurrection. Um, it was already kind of a new thing that they were doing. Um, it's a shift from as particularly those who had been used to being Jewish in the past. It was a shift from what they'd been used to be doing. And it says, as they were breaking bread, they were fellowshipping. They were eating this meal doesn't mean literally they were only sharing bread. Probably they were probably eating a full meal. Um, but it says that Paul was intending to leave the next day, but he decided to extend his time with them um, because uh, what, what, how I understand and read this is because he felt the limitations of his time. I only have hours with these people, and he decided to extend the amount of time he would speak with them. Um, that, again, speaks to his pastoral heart for these people. Like, you know, you're getting ready to be on a trip. If, if I know I'm flying somewhere in the next morning, I, I don't want to stay up till midnight talking to people <laughs> uh, personally. Uh, but Paul does. He loves these people. He cares about them. He wants to speak and minister to them, potentially in their own confusion. Um, I think he felt an urgency to speak with them and to get as much out of his time as possible with them. Um, but also, don't picture this situation. This is them sitting in a room. It's, it's more like what we'd consider a house church today. Um, this wasn't a, I don't believe, and I think there's good reasons to, to not think that this was a monologue lecture. It's not like Paul was just riffing for hours and hours and hours at them, <laughs> just talking and talking and talking. This would have likely been a very lively back and forth conversation. Paul's talking about the gospel, the implications of a Jesus as the Messiah, and then people stopping and saying, wait, what do you mean by this? Or well, what does this mean for how we do this? Or when you leave, what are we supposed to do about this situation? Like this would, this would have been the, the, I think the tone. Uh, of the whole conversation. And man, I wish I could have been there for that. Like imagine how uh, just enriching that would be to sit in a room with someone like Paul and just be able to, to ask questions, talk back and forth, feel his care for you. Um, an example, personal example of this that I thought of is uh, when I was in grad school, I got to go to, it was one of my, would become one of my absolute favorite concert experiences of my life. I actually went to a house show. Has anyone ever been to a house show, like a musical uh, house show concert experience? Um, so this was literally, uh, it was one of my favorite uh, singer-songwriters. Uh, his name is David Bazan, if you know who that is. Um, he was doing shows in living rooms. And so you'd, you'd buy a ticket, 
and the ticket would have the address of some random person's house. And you'd drive to their house. And then I knocked on the door, and he had a, the guy who owned the house who was offering his living room had a list of names of people who bought tickets. And so we went in, and there were about 25 of us sitting in some, none of us knew each other, sitting in a living room. Uh, and then David Bazan walks in. He plays a few songs, and then he stops, and he says, does anybody have any questions about my music? And, and I'm like, is this really happening right now? Uh, and we start having this conversation. He plays a few more songs. We have some conversation. We get to talk to him about his art, his um, his work. Now, this is not a one-to-one comparison to speaking with the Apostle Paul, but I couldn't help but think about this because, man, it was such an enriching experience for me to be in the room with someone uh, that had an impact on me and to be able to ask him questions and get his wisdom, get it, or his, his experiences. Um, and I was doing it with people. It wasn't a solitary thing. It was a communal event. So anyways, I'm just trying to draw out the imaginative kind of aspect of this. Like, imagine yourself being there in that moment knowing this guy is going to leave the next morning and just wanting to get as much from him as you can um, because you're going to have to keep, as a community, you're going to have to keep going after he leaves. Like, we're going to keep following Jesus in this world. Um, It's really powerful to start to let yourself imagine that. But then, then the weird thing happens. So let's keep going. In verse 8. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talks on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Pause on that for a second. The room is full of lamps. It's probably warm. That's probably why that little parenthetical is there. We're not sure. But uh, And this young man, we don't know how old he was. Young man falls asleep, probably leaning up close to the window, falls asleep and falls out and dies, hits the ground and dies. Take a second. Again, we read these stories so fast. We tend to read them so fast. Take a second to imagine this. You're in a crowded room. You're having this lively exchange with the Apostle Paul. You know he's going to leave the next morning. You're eager to, to, to interact with him and answer, ask him questions. It's late at night. You know the time is getting away from you. And then your friend, possibly your friend, you might know Eutychus, or maybe he's the son of your friend. This is not a huge group of people. Suddenly this friend falls out the window and dies in the middle of the night, in the street. What in the world are you feeling right now in that moment? What is that going to feel like? Confusing has to be one of the emotions. Why is the, why is this happening? Why did why what in the world is going on? Let's keep going in verse ten. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, put his arms around him, and said, "Do not be alarmed. He is alive." Then I love this. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. Man, I have so many questions about this first. What, again, what is going on? Paul runs out to the street and throws himself onto the boy and embraces him, wraps his arm around him, and then he's alive. Why did this happen this way? How did Paul know what to do? Did Paul know what to do, or is he just acting on instinct? Why did he throw himself on the boy like that? I, I don't know. Um, you can go ahead and take the uh, map down now, James. Go, just go to the next slide. Um, we don't know. The text doesn't answer those questions for us. It just tells us that it happened. For those of you who are like super into Bible, if you're a Bible nerd, Bible geek, (laughs) 
This might, this little interaction might be an allusion to 1 Kings chapter 17, which is the story of Elijah. If you know it, the story of Elijah laying on top of the um, child and bringing the child back to life. There might be a connection there if you're interested in that, but I'd encourage you to go back and read 1 Kings 17 if that's something that intrigues you. But regardless, we don't get clear and clear answers and explanations to, to why this happened and how this happened a certain way. Ethan's brought up in previous sermons wishing that we had more, like, why did this happen this way? Why was, why was this person saved from jail and not this person? Why was this person executed? And Ken's also talked about this. Why was this person executed and not this person? We, we don't know. But we do know that Eutychus was alive after this strange experience and that Paul returned after this. He goes back upstairs and keeps talking to them. Again, put yourself in that moment. What in the world are you feeling and thinking? It's like, wait, did, didn't, this, didn't this guy just die? Uh, or maybe he didn't? What, what happened? <laughs> um, but they keep sharing a meal and they keep speaking. And Paul is willing to stay with these people he loves until daylight, all night. He literally stays with them all night, even though he's traveling the next morning. Just can you, again, can you imagine being in the room at that point, right after this crazy whirlwind? of events you know uh maybe euphoria happiness joy at being with paul confusion devastation at this this uh, young man who fell out and died and then happiness that he's alive but but more confusion and bewilderment as to what just happened and what god is doing in this moment this is all this is all happening i think this all marks a lot of the experiences of the early church there's whirlwinds um i've used the phrase holy disruption in previous sermons like this is disruptions um, of God acting in unexpected ways. But what I want to end on is this short verse in verse 12. It says, the people took, this is after Paul leaves, the people took the young man, Eutychus, home alive and were greatly comforted. Other translations say not a little comforted. I kind of like that. Not a little comforted. Even though there are so many questions and so many bizarre things we could try to tease out about what happened and why, what we do see is that the fruit of this really strange little story, the the thing that comes out of it, the thing that comes to the surface is great comfort to the whole community. Not just even individual comfort, but great comfort to everyone. I believe this is ultimately what the gospel produces in communities. I believe this is a sign of God at work, is great comfort, especially in the midst of confusion, particularly in the midst of confusion. That's not to say, now this is not to say there aren't times to experience genuine conviction and challenge. And it's not to say if you're following God, you'll always experience comfort and never discomfort. That's not what I'm saying. What I believe and what I think, one thing I think this story brings out is that God does not desire nor will leave us in those places of discomfort, um, disillusionment, confusion. God desires to bring deep comfort in and through and in the midst of those very experiences. God didn't prevent Eutychus from falling out of the window in the first place, but did something to bring him back alive and bring great comfort to the community in and through it. And I I truly, I don't mean this superficially or in any trite way, but I really believe that truly knowing God, knowing the presence of God, knowing God's work, knowing God's love, knowing God's forgiveness and God's grace, knowing God through the gospel of Christ 
ultimately will produce great comfort, even in the midst of what could otherwise be greatly confusing circumstances, as it did in Troas. And I think as it's doing even for us today. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, say a few signs of great comfort that I believe I've seen in the midst of this very confusing season. So just some small things. Um, I have seen people be extremely gracious. I have seen my neighbors be very loving. Um, I, have, I have developed new relationships with people in my neighborhood. I've had spiritual conversations with my neighbors. That probably wouldn't have happened if COVID hadn't happened, honestly. And again, this is not to minimize the very real confusion. This is to seek for signs of God's deep comfort. In our community, for example, um, there are people, and it because actually because we've tried to figure out how to integrate Zoom into what we do, there are people who literally didn't know each other before COVID started, even in our community. There are people who didn't know each other who now have like real relationships with each other because of Zoom, of all things. They're speaking into each other's lives regularly. They know what's going on in each other's lives, and they didn't before. Um, I know of at least one triad who, before the pandemic started, um, just couldn't even figure out how to get together regularly because of kids and childcare and work and travel. Um, and again, because of the internet and because of connecting over things like Zoom, they're actually meeting more regularly and praying together more and actually seem to have a healthier triad relationship now than before. There's a lot of you, um, and this is more personal for me, but there are many of you who have reached out over the past year simply just to say, we support Monsieur Day. We're, we're sticking by Monsieur Day through all this. Um, we know this is a hard time. We're not going anywhere. Many of you have reached out individually through text or email or whatever. Those sentiments mean more to me than I think you realize. Sorry. This is not meant to be an exhaustive list, but I do see that taken together, there are signs of great comfort in the midst of great confusion. What well, could be even more great confusion. And this leads me, even though I don't have easy answers, I don't know what the future looks like in, all, in, in various ways for our church. This leads me to believe in faith that God is doing something. God has not abandoned us. He's not abandoned you. He's not abandoned your family. Again, this is not to say, this is not, <laughs> I keep repeating this because this is important to clarify for me. This is not trite. And I don't, I don't put this sermon out there and think it's just going to resolve all your confusion. All my, I'm still confused. <laughs> I'm confused about a lot of things right now. But it is to come back to this belief that I believe in a God who does not abandon us to our confusing circumstances and has promised not to help us avoid our confusing circumstances, but not to leave us in the midst of them. Because think about this as we turn to communion. Think about this. Ultimately, what could be more confusing than the Son of God, Savior of the world, being killed on a cross unjustly? What could be more confusing than that? But what could be more comforting than the victory of God as Jesus walked out of the tomb three days later. What could be more confusing than being among the 12, sitting in a locked room, being scared that maybe you'll be next? What could be more comforting than Mary bursting in and saying he's not in the tomb? 
So know this morning that God has not abandoned you. He has not abandoned us. God is a God of comfort, true comfort in the midst of confusion. God is a God of new life. God is a God of restoration, even in the midst of darkness. And as we turn now to take communion, I think Ken is going to lead us through that. As we turn to take communion, I pray that together, communally, not just individually, but communally, we as a family would be reminded and brought more deeply into this great comfort out of great confusion. Amen. Thank you, Joel. Morning. I'm, I'm Ken, and I am going to bring us to the table, which is over here. As we come to this table every week, um, we're specifically encouraged by the Lord Jesus to remember him as we eat and drink. And Paul, Paul adds that as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And uh, we've been considering different ways to remember that we might remember the Lord Jesus as we come to the table on Sunday mornings. Um, it's easy to um, celebrate Easter as we did six weeks ago and forget that wasn't the end of the story of Jesus. It wasn't even the end of his earthly ministry uh, 2,000 years ago. After his resurrection, he spent 40 days with his disciples, at one time appearing to up to 500 people. This past Thursday um, was 40 days after Easter, and I'm going to guess that most of us probably weren't thinking about that on Thursday. Um, it's actually on your calendar, if you have one that says this, uh, it's the day of ascension. We remember, as we remember that the Lord, until he comes again, we might want to remember him as the one who ascended. Those of us who love Jesus, and that we love the stories of him as a man, we love the stories of him walking around on the earth and doing all these amazing acts of power and compassion. We love most of what he said. Once in a while, we struggle with some of what he said to us. Um, we rely for our whole life on the fact that he actually did come. He actually died. He came out of the grave. He rose and that he ascended on our behalf. Sometimes I wonder if we sometimes think or live as though the cross was the end. The cross and the resurrection was the end of the story. Well, those, those 40 days that Jesus had with his disciples were amazing. When the Lord died on Good Friday, his disciples scattered. Two days later, on the third day, he rose from the dead. And that evening, he breathed the Holy Spirit into his disciples. And 40 days after his resurrection, when he left them once again and ascended to heaven, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. They didn't scatter. Something marvelous had happened to them. But what I want to think about as we come to this table this morning is what happened in the heavenly realms on the day that Christ ascended. What happened to the Lord Jesus? Where is he? What might we remember about him this morning as we take the bread and the cup with the same kind of joy that the disciples had as they returned to Jerusalem on that day? And here's the news. Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, is seated at the right hand of God. As the Nicene Creed has it, he ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. 
there's a man in the glory. Here are some words of Paul and the author of Hebrews on the subject. In Ephesians 1, Paul writes this, by the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, our God, uh, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Philippians 2, he says, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name. And in Hebrews, it says, he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. As we come to this table this morning, as we eat and as we drink, and as we remember the Lord Jesus until he comes, I invite us to come to this table rejoicing and remembering the Lord Jesus is a man in the glory, seated in the heavens, the heavenly realms, at the right hand of God. He is the one who created everything. He holds all things together, and he will surely come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Father, as we come to this table, we do remember you, Lord Jesus. We remember you seated on the throne. And we bring our brokenness and our sins before you in the full knowledge that your blood has covered them. We proclaim the blood as we come to this table and we exalt you, Lord Jesus, the exalted, enthroned Christ. Amen. Let's just take a minute now. And if you have anything you need to bring quietly to the Lord, let's do that. You'll take your little cup. You can peel a thin part off the top there and get the little wafer out. And you can peel the other part to open up the juice. These are Paul's words again from 1 Corinthians 11. And we'll take the bread together as we have, as after I read this. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink together. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen.